Welcome to the second season of the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we will now be exploring the exciting and fast-growing world of esports. We will be interviewing a variety of professional esports players, coaches, and stakeholders in order to better understand the psychological demands of competing at the elite level and the important role the mind plays in esports performance. Today we welcome Ryan Hudson to the podcast. Ryan is a UEFA B licensed coach who currently works at Tottenham Hotspurs as the women's first team goalkeeper coach. Ryan has worked his way up the coaching ladder from working with Derby Country Community Trust to Chesterfield, Notts County FC, Nottingham Forest, Reading and Leicester City FC. Not only does he lead all goalkeeper activities at Spurs, but he also leads defending set plays. So it should be an interesting conversation on the psychology of defending set pieces. So let's welcome Ryan to the podcast. Hi guys, you okay? Hello, hello, Ryan. How are we? All good, all good. How's on your side? Yeah, good. Been very busy the last few days, but... (laughs) Yeah, I'm glad you could make yourself available for uh, for, for today. I appreciate it. Yeah, that'd be good, yeah. Yeah, how's it? How's it sort of looking towards the end of the season now? Are you uh, really busy? I suppose. Yeah, well, so we um, obviously we've had a bit of change in the last few days, so it's been like all sort of all hands to the pump just to keep everything sort of working smooth. And then I think we've got seven or eight games left now, so okay. it's just luckily we've got um, not got a game for like nine, ten days, so it's a bit of a a quiet weekend, which is nice, but. Yeah. Yeah, getting to the end of the season, you're just churning games out for fun. I know, yeah. Are you Isn't doing it? any prep? Are you doing any prep work for next season already, or and not yet? Is that too early? <laughs> to be fair, it's it's like constant. It's it's something that is because it's weird because obviously coming from academy football, it's a bit odd because you know the kids in the age group below, so you just know what the chain is. Whereas obviously being in the first team, it's like you've got. The players you've got now and then obviously you know who's still under contract who's not under contract who will be and then you'll have like not more so the manager but you'll know who you want to keep who you want to go then targets like who's out of contract around the world who you look want to get in like it's it's something i never realized it's it's, it's mad and i think it's different in the women's game where in the men's game you've got like five or six recruitment people yeah. but obviously we, we don't like we're not on that women's teams aren't on that scale yeah. unless you maybe one of the big big couple but yeah no, yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, we, we gave like obviously an introduction to yourself. That's why we had to leave you in the waiting room a, a little bit longer than normal. A few mistakes yeah. happened during that. But, uh, <laughs> but a great place we like to start sort of podcasts and for the listeners to get to know you is, you know, talk us through your journey today. You know, who is Ryan Hudson from growing up to where you are now? Yeah, so I think I've had a very strange route into what I'm doing because um I grew up in a household where my dad didn't really like football. He was very much rugby and cricket. Um, I still loved football growing up, like watching it and whatever, but my playing background was always rugby and cricket. Um, And luckily got to like a good level playing rugby. Like not, it's obviously a bit different in the rugby system because you don't go into professional academies till you're like 15, 16. Um, But I was a very successful like club growing up. And I think I was lucky to have some like really good coaches who coached me then, which I think sort of spurred me on to go into coaching myself. And then I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest. I knew I, I enjoyed working with people. 
I didn't really know what I was thinking. I was at sixth form and I was thinking, do I go into university and go into teaching or whatever? And just sort of by chance, I ended up going to Derby County's community trust scheme yeah. um, as an apprentice coach. And because they were going to put me through level one, level two badges, all that. And I think even doing some weird and wonderful things there, like working with three-year-olds on a Saturday morning and all that kind of thing, like that sort of gave me the hunger of like player development and coaching and all that. So I went, so while I was still working there, um, I went to Notts County to do the, originally went in just to do the under 10s. as like the under 10s assistant. And then one day they had a coach in um, Mick House or sat me down and said, look, what do you want to do? And I said, well, I want to be a goalkeeper coach because I'd always played in goal when I had played. Um, so I started doing goalkeeper coaching at Notts County. I think I was there for four seasons, um, four or five seasons, and then went into Forest, um, still part-time as well, alongside working in schools on my full-time job for about six months. And then it was at that point where I got my first full-time job um, coaching. I went to Reading, so moved down south, rented a little room around yeah. the corner from the training ground. Yeah. Um, and I went there for six months. I think I was nines to 14s goalkeeper coach at the academy. And I was so lucky there. Like There were some unbelievable staff, um, both in and out of the goalkeeper department and players as well. And then, yeah, Leicester for... So moved from there to Leicester for four seasons again, which was great. Like, got so many good experiences there. And then, yeah, now I've been at Spurs for six months now. It's flown by, but yeah, six months. How is it at Spurs now? Oh, I, I absolutely love it. It's, I've worked in the women's game before. Um, I worked at... Of Nottingham Forest women, but that was only on like a voluntary basis for a few months. Um, but I thought it was just a really good, like, obviously off the back of the Euros, of the women winning the Euros, I thought it was a great time to go across into the women's game. Um, but also just being in first team football and the things that, the challenges that that throws up. Um, not that I'd completed academy football by any means, but I feel like I'd worked in academy football a lot and I'd done sort of everything from under eights through to under 21s and and assisted in the first team and all that so I just wanted a, a different challenge really and it's definitely been that it's been, there's been some uh, very steep learning curves for myself in in a very short space of time but no I'm, I'm loving it it's really good what, ha- what hasn't been some differences like working in the women's game and also in that first team sort of environment so yeah two questions in one there <laughs> yeah. I, I think to be honest I think I didn't in terms of working in women's football compared to men's there's not really a massive, there's not really a change on the day to day. I think obviously in terms of branding and exposure and and things like that, it's obviously behind the men's game because the men's game has been professional for obviously so many more years, but that is definitely increasing. Like we've had, we played Arsenal at the Emirates towards the start of the season and there was 47,000 there, which was a record attendance. I think we played uh, Man United at at Spurs stadium and there was 22,000 there. So it is, is growing and increasing um, and obviously I hope that continues and it keeps growing. I think the biggest difference was going from academy into first team just with the challenges that faces. So one glaring example that comes into my mind was like set pieces. So obviously a lot of goalkeeper coaches now are in charge of attacking and defending set plays, corners, free kicks and all that. And um, I remember my first game we we played Leicester away in my first game here. And in academy football, if someone wasn't doing the correct job on a set play, the environment was very much, that's fine. Let them learn, speak to them after and say, just so you know, show them a video on this, on this occasion, you weren't doing the right job. 
when this happens in the future and it was very much that approach which i i completely agree and i think that's correct when you're learning let them fail and let them learn from that mistake whereas obviously in the first team it's very much that's an issue which could cost us a goal and that's going to cost us three points and that could lead to so on and so on so it's very much like get up on the sideline scream and shout it fix it whereas i really wasn't used to that so took me probably three or four games to really get into the habit of everything matters right now in this moment and it has to be stopped whereas like i said academy football was was more let them fail and let them learn so it was very different in that sense mm. that was something unique to your sort of journey when i was like doing my research on you and i really wanted to touch on that because it's sort of a unique perspective that we haven't really had on the pod in terms of that defending set plays um maybe talk us through your role of you know that because i know that you lead that as the first team you know women's coach so yeah take us through that role yeah so i mean so that's one another difference coming from the academies i do a lot of analysis in this role okay. i often joke to the staff here that i'm like half goalkeeper coach half analyst yeah so i'll look at so from a set piece point of view i'll look at um how the team attacks and how the team scores goals from set pieces who we're playing against um, that'll often look like how many numbers they put in the box, if they have one on the goalkeeper, if they have one short, how many they have on the edge and things like that. And then I'll go on stats bomb and look at which players are in the box, a lot of personnel. So, for example, if you're playing Chelsea, you're looking at Chelsea's players and you're going, OK, Sam Kerr is going to be in the box. She's a priority, et cetera, et cetera. So come to match day, I basically have like a, a coded sheet for myself with priorities so we know who who's the main people that you've got to look after basically mm -hmm. um obviously on in the grass on the grass during the week um basically setting up the, the, our non-starting 11 on how the other team would set up and doing some live set plays with the ball being delivered and sort of letting i feel it's important to let the players stop and question what's going on and i think that's one thing i've noticed more i don't know whether that's working in the women's environment or just working in the first team in general but they want they want to know more so in academy football sometimes you can see the lads are a bit like yeah yeah okay and they just do it or they try and do it or they ignore you one of them but they don't ask many questions whereas in this environment it's very much so if for example this player goes short and they play here they play there and a player will go hang on ryan but what happens if this happens and what happens if that happens and they really want to know the detail which is great for two reasons obviously it puts me on the spot as a coach which makes me better but also you know that they're thinking of the different eventualities so if something happens that we've not planned for, they know the priorities and know what to deal with. So we do, yeah, so we do that on the grass. Um, I will do like a, a presentation to the team um, every week on the other team's set plays and how they could hurt us. And then on match day, it's mainly making sure that um, everyone's doing their correct jobs. And so I'm sort of, even though the manager makes the decision on substitutions, I'm responsible for giving the card into the fourth official and going through their set plays with them. And obviously it's not always straightforward. So you might have a player coming on who you don't see as a main like marker for us defending and the player who be coming off might be one of those players. So then it's right. You're going on, you're going to do this role, but when you go on, you've also got to tell so-and-so to move here and so-and-so to move there. So then you've got to trust them to pass that information on, but also not trust them in a way and you have to get the information on as well so if you if a ball goes out for a throw in it's quickly shouting on to that player that they've adjusted their role or so and this is what i mean so coming from academy football to do all that i did do i did do set play stuff with the academy 
but it's very different. It's very much more analytical than it was at Leicester. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Like a couple of things there, like in terms of the mental side of defending set plays, the two main ones that come out for me there are a concentration, like the ability to, first of all, understand all the different roles because you have to be aware of each one, not just your role, because if you've got a swap to, to facilitate, you know, if, if someone's just come off, then you need to go in and do that job. And then the other one's communication. Um, in terms of the communication, obviously you don't want it to get misconstrued in terms of who's who are the main communicators. Does everyone want to communicate in your set plays or do you want to have like your goalkeeper commanding everything or the captain? Like what's sort of your standpoint on that? So my standpoint on it is we, we obviously have people in certain positions who can maybe so they might be like a zonal marker as opposed to a man marker. So they might, and the goalkeeper, for example, as well as that, yeah. they might have the ability to sort of, because they can get into their position quicker, they might have the ability to look at the big picture more and sort of command people around. But my standpoint with the team is just everyone communicate. If you see something, shout it. Don't, because what you don't want to do is it not be necessarily your job or your role and you see something and you don't say anything and that doesn't end up getting dealt with. I'm very, I very much say to the girls, like if you see any, if you see something, just just shout and just say. And that's something that we've worked really hard on over this season, is that, like, when it hits the fan, and something goes wrong or something's different to what we thought it was going to be, how do you adjust and deal with that? And they've got a lot better at being flexible with their th with their thought process and communicating with each other and adjusting on the spot, which is which has helped us a lot in that area. Mm. Yeah. Do you ever like combine your approach with the attacking set pieces coach and him like trying to throw a curveball at you to sort of uh, defend, you know, on the training pitch? Um, no, not really. Um, I think it's, and it, I guess it's something else that comes with being in the first team environment. You, your approach on the pitch has to be very tailored because you're on a performance model. So the sports scientists have to very much manage loading and how long we're on the grass and how much work the players are doing so you, it's a case of like the attacking set plays get done the defending set plays get done and then it's sort of like right cut that cut that time now and make sure we're off the grass and and the players have got appropriate time to recover but to be fair something i've not ever really thought about is almost like playing off against each other if that makes sense yeah yeah, yeah. that's interesting that'd be a cool dynamic to sort of see because uh, adaptability, you know, uh, on yeah. both sides. Have you ever thought about delving into attacking set players, or, or are you just going to stick to defending? <laughs> no, I, I like I like doing both. To be honest, um, yeah. I think that it's something that the good thing about working here is it's not like a you're in charge of that, so you deal with it type culture. It's a very much you have the responsibility. So ultimately, like the decision will lie in your area of expertise. However. If you see anything, and because obviously in this job, we all watch the other team loads. So I'm watching the attackers, I'm watching their goalkeeper, I'm watching the set plays. I'm, I'm, you're watching so much that it's very much a case of, actually, if you looked at that, I think that could work. And then you explain the rationale why, and then you can have that honest discussion and people might implement some other people's ideas as well. And that sounds like a really sort of collaborative approach, which uh, yeah. can only benefit the team, you know? Just, just uh, going, 
I was really curious, just going back on that sort of hunger to learn and, you know, that's, that's sort of something I've noticed working in the women's game. Where do you think that sort of comes from? What do you think influences that, that hunger to learn from their side, do you think? It's a, it's a weird one. I guess, like anything, people are just people. So we've done a lot around learning styles and communication styles with our sports psychologist here. Um, and they've done their spotlight profiles and we look at sort of how they communicate with each other. And it was quite interesting. We, we've done some team sort of building days and you notice the players who are logical thinkers, they, like in the team meetings, they sit on the front row and they want every shred of information you can give them. And you can see some of the girls in the back row like rolling their eyes like, oh my God, we've been in here for an hour. Let's just like, we, know, we get it, let's just move on. But obviously the people who are logical want to know every bit of information. So I think obviously different every, people, men, women, whatever, everyone learns different. So that obviously comes into it. I think, I mean, I don't know, I've, I've not been in the women's game long, but obviously the women's game has not been professional for as long. So I think we're starting to see it now where the younger players have come through more of an academy system like the boys have had. Whereas I know some of the players who are in their early 30s have come, not come through that system. They've come through, they've been paying to play football and now they're being paid to play. So I don't know whether some of that comes from the hunger to learn because it's not been the norm for them the whole time that's me sort of guessing but I would like knowing a couple of the players who are a bit older they do have that real hunger for more information so that might be one point of where it comes from mm. just before we sort of move off of sort of set players obviously you mentioned working with a sports psychologist there it's a very open question there might not be an answer to it but have there been any other sort of things we could touch on in terms of the mental side of defending set players that we haven't touched on so far? I think, and to be fair, this doesn't just relate to set plays, but I think just the real hunger and desire to not let the ball go in the back of the net. Obviously yeah. with goalkeepers, it's a, it's a massive point of the game is taking one in the face or in the stomach or whatever to keep it out. But with the team, it was the case of you might, like it might not always look how it's supposed to look, you might have to just throw a, a big leg out or, or dive in the way of something just to stop it going in. And just the, because that's not, a, that's not a conscious thought. That's just a, a natural thing. So we've done, we've had intervention, not necessarily just around set plays, but interventions in training, which I've used the whole time, really not just here, but like the first goal's worth double or if it's a, if it's the yellow ball as opposed to the white ball, it's worth five goals and just little things to, sort of add pressure and add importance because if you're doing 20 set plays in a training session or 10 set plays that the, the first one or the last one or the middle one doesn't matter as much whereas if you make it matter as if it was the last minute and it was the last corner of the game you're never gonna be able to replicate that in training but you can try with different strategies like i said like double got double goals or anything like that yeah, like i love that, the ball <laughs> the color the ball color i love yeah. that that's so cool that's so creative <laughs> Yeah, I've, I used to use that a lot. I, I know there'll be, um, there's goalies at Leicester who we used to play golden ball. So it was basically like a, whatever drill we did, the, like a shot stopping drill, but the golden ball was worth double or worth five or whichever. And it would always, it would always be the case where like, I'd, I'd shoot one for one goalkeeper and I put it over mm. and the other goalkeeper's like, oh, you've wasted the opportunity to get me some goals for him because I think yeah. they're in a competition. And then the other guy goes in and I put it in the top corner and he's like, oh, it's typical. He gets the one in the top, I get the one in the top corner. But it's good. I think it just, I think that 
rivalry and competitiveness or the golden ball or double goals or so not diving. So if the goalkeeper doesn't dive for a shot and it goes in, it's worth double goals and just little things like that to try and increase the pressure they're under, I think helps. Yeah, for sure. Constraints and, and, and training is so important. Uh, almost as simple as that one where it's like last goal wins and uh, no matter what the <laughs> score is, <laughs> no matter what the score is, as soon as that's said, everyone puts like 110% in. Um, yeah, no matter the age. But um, obviously you've worked in the academy setups. Now you're in the first team. Um, I think for any sort of young goalkeepers listening to this, if they were to understand what, are the psychological mental attributes to make it to the professional game what would you say that they are uh, for them to sort of develop if they're going to be successful yeah I think I mean there's loads but I think the the first one that comes to my mind as being so important is just resilience because I think I've listened to obviously I was I was really privileged at Leicester to work with Casper Schmeichel quite a few times and I remember listening to him on the high performance podcast and he was saying that he thrives off being the last line of defence. He loves the fact that he knows if he messes up, it's going to cost the team. But to operate in that headspace for an hour and a half, like every weekend, is, is an insane place to live. Because, and obviously going through the pathway is so different. In the pathway, I almost wanted the goalkeepers to fail. I wanted them to come for crosses and miss the ball and or try that clearance with their weaker foot and they slice it to the striker and it goes in. Because that's where the gold dust is, that's where the learning takes place. But the older you get and the more serious it gets, those things do happen, but almost aren't allowed to happen. Mm. So it's if you do slice the ball to a striker and they tap it in, if you if your head falls off, you're going to get another cross put on top of you or you're going to have another shot or another pass back in the next minute or so. And how are you going to deal with that? Are you going to shy away from it and not want to deal with it? because I don't think that's going to work. You can end up being put in that situation sooner rather than later. I think one example springs to mind where I had a goalkeeper at Leicester who's um, in the under-16s now and he's, he's been offered his scholarship and whatever. His biggest area coming through the academy was the psychological side. Um, and he did, a, he did a free... So we got a free kick. He put the ball down. He went to clip it into the fullback. And he completely shanked it. it hit, I think it hit their striker and they tried... They nearly scored. They might have like just missed or whatever. And because I knew he could crumble psychologically, I'm always sat on the bench like rubbing my hands together thinking, oh, this is great. Like, this is great. He's messed up because I want to see how he's going to react to it. Yeah. And the next time it happened, he came straight out, put his hand in the air, got the ball, put it down and did it again. And I was like, great, because he's now not hiding. He's, he's going, yeah, give it me. Like, I'll, I'll take the responsibility on. And I think for goalkeeper, that's important in any professional athlete. But I think with goalkeepers, it's even more important that you can deal with rubbish or deal with something that's unjust or unfair and you can carry on and crack on with things after. Mm, yeah, no, for sure. Talking about taking that responsibility, um, I think, I wish I mentioned this in the last podcast. We had a, we had a goalkeeper coach on the last one as well um, and I wanted to talk about penalties. Obviously, yeah. after the World Cup, Emmy Martinez was a huge sort of highlight in terms of the psychology of saving penalties. Um, it seemed like he was just in the head of everyone. Have you done much work with goalkeepers on penalties? Um, and, and, you know, how do you view the psychology of that? Are there any sort of um, dark arts that you uh, that you implement or anything like that? 
I think, to be fair, I think it depends on the individual. Like, I've worked yeah. with so many keepers who all have different strategies where, and if you speak to them about it as well, they have reasons for it. So there was one goalkeeper I worked with at Leicester who was six foot eight. So obviously in the goal on a penalty, he looks enormous. Like, he's such a daunting sight. And I saw him in a penalty shootout playing for USA, which is his, his country he plays for. And he, he made himself as small as possible. So he stood in the middle of the goal and, like, obviously didn't curl himself up in a ball properly, but, yeah. like, almost to that extent, like, really crouched down to the floor, still on his tiptoes, obviously, but, like, made himself as small as possible. And I thought, <laughs> how strange for a keeper who's that big to make himself look that small. And then his strategy was, as the penalty taker got into their run-up, he went, then stood up and put his arms out and made himself look as big as possible because he wanted the goal to look massive and then look tiny. Yeah, yeah. But other goalkeepers who don't want to move, they don't want to push the bar, they don't want to clap their hands together, they just stand dead still. Just so, I don't know, the, the, the stillness of the goalkeeper makes the attacker uncomfortable, I don't know. But I've personally never worked with goalkeepers specifically on an approach, but I've told them just to do whatever they feel feels right in that moment almost. Yeah. Okay. As a striker. Yeah. Oh my God. What, what was yours, yeah. John? I was going to say, like, as a striker, that first trap, I would panic in my run up. Like, seeing the goal just shrink like that, I would be, yeah. I would be, yeah. No. Mine was like when keepers stand, so I was the penalty taker for my team. And whenever a keeper sort of stands off center, that's when that really sort of throws me off is to be like, right. Are they like wanting me to go like far away from them, or you know, because it was a recent one. I think it was Kepa who stood. He stood off centre for Van Dyke's penalty in, in a penalty yeah, shootout. In the cup final, wasn't it? Yeah, and, and was Van Dyke just wrapped it to his side where he was standing. Yeah, and Kepa actually stayed there. and didn't save it, but yeah, that 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 throws me off. I don't know whether there's a strat, John, that throws you off like that. You don't like keepers to do the one that. I've never had this personally, but just the, the Martinez one during the World Cup, like keepers yeah. walking up that, honestly, I would, lo- I would lose my head. Like I was so, so, just watching it, I felt so bad for the France players because it, it clearly worked, um, especially yeah. Trumeni, young guy. Um, he just, yeah, he, he, he got in his, in his head so easily. Um, I've, seen, I've seen so many, like I remember in an academy game when I was at Leicester, we played Norwich. And the Norwich goalkeeper said to our, in, in like an in-game penalty, not a shootout, he said, I know where you went last time. And he just said to him, like, I, I know where you went last time. And then he put it in the same place and he saved it. But I just think the beauty of being a goalkeeper and a penalty, penalty shootout or just a penalty in-game is you're not the, you can never be the villain. Be the like, yeah. even if, and which is weird because it's like the opposite to goalkeeping in the rest of the game. Yeah. But like, even if a goalkeeper goes the right way and gets a hand on it, someone will say, oh, he, he maybe could have done better. But there'll never be a, oh, the keepers cost us that by not doing that on the penalty. Mm. Whereas, like I say, in the actual game, it's different. It's like the goalkeeper costs you everything. Some, it's the way it's portrayed anyway sometimes. So, like, I know, like, when I was playing, I used to love penalties. Penalties, penalty shootouts, just... And, what like was your say, approach? My approach was to start off the goal line, so start closer to them. Okay. As, I'm walk, as I'm walking back, basically just say anything like, Oh, I know which side you're going. I know you're going to go down to this side, or so I have a plan of where I want to go. And I, or I might not even have a plan, but I'll just say to them like, "Oh, you're definitely going to go that side, aren't you?" Or anything just to try and get in their head. Yeah. And then the one I always used to do was if I thought I knew which way they wanted to go, I would, as they're running up, I would lean to the opposite side. 
which yeah. does work like it does really work sometimes but obviously if you guess wrong it, it pretty much kills you straight away yeah. but i think with i think it's Jorginho, isn't it who has a weird i was going to ask about that the stutter penalty yeah i remember seeing jan sommer um i can't remember what game it was but he it was so odd to look at he he lent one way so because so, he knows Jorginho is looking for which side he's going and as Jorginho went to strike it, somehow he flipped his legs underneath his body to dive the correct way and saved it. Yeah, I see. It's a really weird, like, phenomenon. But but this is I mean, it's so important. If you know, and this is the, the thing with being in the first team and all the access to video analysis you've got, if you know what you might be faced with, you can preempt strategies to deal with it, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, all those stuttered run-ups and things like that, just they play with my heart too much. I, I prefer the penalty takers, like... Harry Kane, where it's power and placement at sort of the same time. All these people who just roll it in. I don't know how they have the the, the balls to do it. Like I would, I would not be able to do that. I'd have to just Yeah, I love that technique. But because if, if you don't put it off, you look you just look so like stupid, yeah. don't you? Um yeah, yeah. Like, why didn't you put power on there or why didn't you place it better? It's got sort of like hazard as well. He used to do so many of them. Well, my old boss at Leicester, I remember he had, he had a conversation with one of the goalkeepers before a, a cup game. And he said, have you ever considered just standing still and waiting? Not for every penalty, but maybe if you're not, if you're not getting any cues or any triggers off the, off the penalty taker, have you ever considered just standing still? And it's really difficult to do because they're 12 yards out, but not move until it's kicked because the, you know the ones where they go down the middle or... They try and do a calm roll to the left or right. You've got time to react. But even the ones where there's some penalty takers who want the, the cue off the goalkeeper. So they want to see the goalkeeper lean one way or the other mm. and they'll go the other way. But then what happens to that penalty taker if the goalkeeper hasn't moved? So you're doing your slow, staggered run-up, wait and staring at the goalkeeper's knees and ankles, waiting to see a, a tiny movement. What do you do if he doesn't move and he stands dead still? Does that put you off? Do you miss? Do you... like So... I thought it was really interesting on that. I'd never heard a coach, a goalkeeper coach specifically, say to a goalkeeper, if you don't know what to do, just don't move. Like just yeah. stand dead still and just see what happens. I think that was the advice to one of the keepers for one. I can't remember which penalty it was and which keeper it was, but it was for a Jorginho penalty where he just com stood completely still and it completely threw Jorginho off and he missed. Yeah. Um, I definitely think that's a strap for people who have that style of, of just sort of rolling it in. Yeah. Um, have you ever been uh, penenkered? Sort of chip down the middle. I think it happens every day in training here, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, uh, I can't imagine the disrespect. <laughs> had, to be fair, I have seen a goalkeeper want to say, like, so they've gone down to dive and they've seen it. And because they were so tall, they managed to reach back up with their leg and just like almost like overhead kick it out of the goal after being connected. Great. But no, yeah, it happens to me a lot. We've got one player here in particular. She does it to me every time we get a penalty shoot. <laughs> I remember watching a YouTube video um, and it was ben, Fo ben Foster in goal and it was with like a load of YouTubers and he said, if any of you try and chip it down the middle, I am sprinting straight after you. And they did it after the first penalty. Honestly, keepers must hate it. <laughs> one of the goalkeepers at Leicester Springs, not from penalties, but if anyone used to chip it or try and chip him, he'd go after him. Like he just volleyed the ball at him. He hated it. So I remember one example where they're doing like a finishing drill and the lads come through 1v1 and in, all he had to do was just a bit of power, put it to the side of the goalkeeper and it, it was in, but he tried to chip him and the goalkeeper's like gone into his 1v1 shape 
but he's seen he's tried to flick it, so he's caught it, ran after him, volleyed it, and just pinned this ball in the middle of his back. And I was just, I, yeah, yeah, they, keep they deserve it. it. They deserve it. Yeah, can't be doing that. <laughs> uh, Another aspect that I really wanted to talk about. So talking about Martinez, I remember seeing a clip of him. So it was, I think it was against United. It was Dinia who was uh, taking the free kick and all people in the wall. And he was got, he went behind the free kick taker and yeah. was sort of guiding the other players uh, as to where to stand essentially to make it harder for the other goalkeeper. Yeah. How important is the role of a goalkeeper in other aspects of the game? So like that communication, like during the game itself, is that something that you really look in, like look for in players, like communicating like to them during the game and to, to, to the teammates? Is that something you, you really look for? Yeah, I think it's a massive element and and this is this was something that was really difficult working in academy football because the role of a goalkeeper you have to know your role and how that looks within the team and within the system you're playing you have to know the center backs jobs the full backs jobs the center mids jobs the wingers jobs the strikers jobs like you have to know everyone's role because and quite rightly you can see everything on the pitch like you're the only player on the pitch who doesn't need their head on 360 so you are in that privileged position. So obviously working with young players is so hard because you question them. Well, some coaches like will tell a goalkeeper off for not communicating, like or they'll put it on their learning plan, like doesn't communicate. But my approach is always like, well, why? So I would go to a goalkeeper, like I would stand behind them in training. And this is another element I think I've seen certain coaches not do, which is massive, where when the goalie's in with the team, stand behind the goal and just observe them observing the game if that makes sense and see what they are noticing and aren't noticing so I remember having one and saying to the goalkeeper I think he was 14 at the time and said oh well have you what have you noticed there and he was like uh, and you could see he's trying to give me an answer that I want to hear and I was like be honest just just be honest with me like I'm not I'm not trying to pressure you just just say what you think and he goes well no I didn't see it I don't know like I don't know what to say to him and I think that's something in academy football especially in the boys side because it's so high pressured they feel like they have to know everything so basically what happened is like a, a cross had come in the the center forward had peeled off the back of the center half and got a free header and scored but he just hadn't he didn't know what to say to the defender he didn't know about body shape or whatever but obviously as they get older and they learn that information it's so important like i often used to say to the young goalkeepers you can probably prevent 10 goals a season with your mouth like if the ball goes out wide and is about to be crossed in and you quickly glance over your left shoulder and you see they've got, I don't know, your left back is looking at the ball and a striker is running around the back of them and you can see that, just say, for, like, just say, for example, your left back is called John, you just shout, John, left shoulder, he sees it, he opens up, the ball goes back post and he's in a position to defend it. Well, that could have been a goal that you've prevented just with your mouth. And I think that's something that younger players don't appreciate as much. And like I said, like, really fortunate to work with some really experienced goalkeepers. So when I joined Leicester, the th the three first-team goalkeepers were Kasper Schmeichel, Danny Ward and Eldin Jakubovic. Yeah. So obviously Kasper and, Kasper and Eldin both being in their 30s and Wardy being in his late 20s. But just looking at how they communicate in like small-sided games, like we're not even talking on, on match day, but like in the Premier League, just small-sided games, um, attack v defence games, just how detailed and concise they were with their communication but obviously that, that takes a long time to to learn the art of that and I think it's 
it's massive. If you can get your goalkeeper to see the whole pitch and get them to pinpoint areas that are going right and going wrong and prevent, like use preventative tactics with their mouth, that's like gold dust. If you can get someone who's good at doing that, it's worth its weight in gold. Yeah, 100%. I think it's great that you sort of use role models uh, in your work. That's something I do in my you know, sports psychology work. Um, use role models that are sort of similar to, to their play style. And obviously... To learn from Casper um, must have been unbelievable for the players, you know, that were that were looking up to him because being from Leicester, he's sort of like a cool hero. I was so surprised to see him go. I know that he's come out recently saying he, he wants to come back, but I knew that Leicester had struggled after letting him go because of you know who he was in the dressing room. I think the goalkeeper can often be the glue of the dressing room, uh, a bit of a different character from from the uh, the outfield players. Um, in, in terms of like your work with the first team now obviously you're at the top like you've not really got anyone you can't take the first team goalkeeper to go and watch the person above them so who do you sort of use now in terms of using those role models to learn even further I think the interesting thing is I think there's always stuff to be taken from everywhere yeah. like and that's not even within football. Like you might be in football and you might look at like a wicketkeeper do something watching England playing a test match and go, oh, interesting. Or like I did, um, I've done stuff like with Loughborough Uni's handball team before, just looking at how like the body shapes, the handball goalkeepers get into, because that's similar to like a goalkeeper defending a header because of the trajectory of the ball and and even like, even though I'm in a women's first team, you can look at different women's first teams or different goalkeepers. Like there could be, like, there could be a goalkeeper who's playing in a team who's conceding the most goals in the league every single week. They could be letting like four or five goals in every game. But I guarantee there was something from that goalkeeper you could take that you would like. And I think it's something that I've found in football where my approach might be different is because I've not come from like an ex-pro or elite background in, in this sport particularly, I'm so open to learning. I want to be like a sponge. And whether that comes from football or another sport, I don't really care. And not as a general rule, but I think there's certain people I've come across in football who, because they've been through it, they think that they know what they, well, they know what they know, but they think that's the correct thing. And sometimes they're not always open to be challenged or learn from different environments. And I think, I mean, you even look at the way the game's pr progressed in the last five years. I think it's almost like adapt or die in football, isn't it? So if you're taking some, if you're doing a goalkeeper session, but you've taken a drill from an ice hockey goalkeeper coach, well, if it works, it works. It's, there's always transferable skills in, in everything you do. So it's a bit of a round the house's way of answering it. But I think I don't have a specific role model. Like it's just anything I see that I like, I'll try it. And I think trial and error is a massive part of coaching and playing. I've done some sessions and I've come away after and going, God, that was horrendous. And is it a case of I'm scrapping that or I'll try tweaking that bit and it might work or it might not all, but you don't know unless you try really. Yeah, being innovative, it's, uh, that's the only way you can so, sort of, you know, grow and grow beyond the limits. Um, so, yeah, I love that ability to, to look at different sports and take that into football. Um, it seems to be a common theme across elite coaches that we've had on the podcast. Um, it's so interesting to hear that. For yeah. sure. 
one uh, one athlete I was working with, she's a handball goalkeeper, and she, she exactly did that. She she looks into football to to adapt her playing style. And so it's really interesting that you say that. Yeah. <laughs> One thing I found really interesting with handball is that like the culture of goalkeepers. So in handball, like a, a save, I mean, obviously because the um, the way they're shooting in handball is so close to the goalkeeper, and it's so difficult to save because they can they can throw it hard or they can spin it and do a drop or a lob or whatever. But a, a goalkeeper save in handball is really celebrated. It's like, oh yes, they've saved it. Like that's great. Whereas in football, a lot of the time, it's the only the saves that get that kind of plaudit. So the the pulls out the top corner or like the ball's basically over the goal line and they fly and claw it out. Whereas actually like, and I don't think it's all the time. I don't think it comes from a place of malice. I think it's a, just a lack of education that even the basic saves where someone hits a dip in shot and it bounces just in front of you, all the individual components that go into making that save are really difficult, but because people don't quite understand, it's just like, Oh, well they should be making that save and that's expected. Whereas I think it was interesting in handball where the culture was, Oh my God, they've saved it. Let's celebrate it, type thing. That was quite an interesting thing to learn. Yeah, yeah. I think the culture of sort of social media on goalkeepers is pretty, uh, pretty hostile in, in, in football. Um, I'm a United fan, and uh, the stuff I see about De Gea, it's uh, some of it is so bad about his distribution and things like that. But the stuff he does in terms of shot stopping is like probably one of the best in the league. Um, and you talk about that adapting or dying sort of thing. How has your coaching changed over the years? How difficult has that been to adapt to the modern game of a goalkeeper in, in terms of that distribution? Yeah, so that's so my, I'd say when I first started out, so sort of in my early days at Notts County, I wouldn't say my philosophy has changed completely, but my, my underpinning belief was if you have a goalkeeper and you make them excellent shot stoppers and the basics are nailed on like the brilliant basics so like catching scooping punching like cross taking all, all the basics are nailed on if you get them to a really good level with all that and they can pass a ball 10 yards to a center back and they can whack a ball like a, into a striker they're going to earn a career in the game whether that be non-league or lower league or they'll they'll learn a career in the game. Now, my, my beliefs haven't completely changed. I still believe that to an extent. But it's how important the goalkeeper is in playing out from the back, which is mental. They've And not even just from a, a technical point of view, having the techniques to do it, it's the decision-making. Because as a coach, you have the beauty of looking through cameras or looking from the sideline. But obviously, being a goalkeeper and having played in goal myself, when you're stood there, and every single player on the pitch is looking at you and they're trying to narrow off certain angles and you're trying to pass it round a player or through a player. It's it's so difficult to make that decision first, to commit to it, and then to be able to pull it off with the technique. Like, it's such a difficult skill. I mean, nowadays, a, a goalkeeper at the top end has to be near on perfect in every range of pass from, like, one yard to 60 yards, which is, which is mental because it's such a hard thing to do. But there's no going away from it now. Like goalkeepers are pivotal. Like I know Ramsdale spoke a lot on podcasts about how, when he came into Arsenal, Arteta would go to him and say, you have the ball when we've got a goal kick. You're, you're instrumental in the playing out. You're the decision maker. Like you, you know what we're trying to do. So little things like receiving a pass back and waiting for the striker to press him to the point where it's 
just get into the borderline of being dangerous than to play it round and to take them out of the game. And like things like that weren't in the game years ago. They just tell you to whack it if it was getting close to you. So my 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 philosophy's changed a little bit. I still believe fundamentally that your goalkeeping basics have to be nailed on if you want a chance. Like if your distribution's so good, you can get three assists per game, but you chuck into in between your legs in a game, no one's going to trust you to play you. So the basics have to be nailed on. But if you want to have a any ambition of going to the top level, you have to be basically as good on your feet as a centre midfielder, basically. Mm. I had a question about sort of, you know, you talk about making it to the top um, and sort of adapting to the modern game and you can sort of earn your career, whether it's non-league um, or, or whatever level. Um, obviously a huge thing in academy football, especially when you get to sort of the 23s as a goalkeeper is those developmental loans. Um, now, I wanted to sort of talk about the women's game how I, I'm not familiar. How uh, are they available as much like developmental loans uh, in the women's game? Yeah, so they definitely are. It's just obviously the difficulty with the women's game is there's much less professionalism, like in terms of full time football. So, for example, one of our goalkeepers at the moment, who is technically our third choice goalkeeper, um, She's on loan at Coventry United, who are in the league below in the championship. Mm. Now, they still operate on a, on a part-time model. So she's yeah. with us and with them. Similarly oh. to how I would... Well, similarly to how it is with a, in the boys' side, where I've sent goalkeepers out to, like, step five non-league football, step four non-league football, where it's part-time. So the development of, developmental loans are there. It's just the there's less professional football for them to go into, if that makes sense. But across both sides of the game, men's and women's, they're so important. Like they are, they are invaluable for, for the skills you need to go and have a career. Especially as a goalkeeper, I think in terms of like the physicality, um, you know, sort of coming and claiming corners, for example, um, what are some things you look for in a developmental loan? Maybe if you're talking to the coach that you're, First of all, are there specific coaches that you like? Like, does the coach have to sort of align with you or is it very much just sort of get them in a club if it's a good, a good opportunity and they're having loads of reps? Um, that's what you look for. The thing is, I think I'm very much a believer, like, I I don't like to control environments too much. Okay. If it's a if it's an environment like a club environment, so like here, for example, you obviously want a good club environment because you're a team and you want to perform. So that's different. But in terms of an environment, in terms of development for an individual, I don't want to control the environment because I think, like you, I listen to a lot of podcasts and especially football ones. And you say, you hear some horror stories about players being in a dressing room and a manager calling them every name under the sun and telling them to get out or, like, or demoting them to the 21s when they're an established first team. Like you hear all these horror stories and all these things. So if I'm being so selective over the environment that I'm not exposing my goalkeeper to something negative, obviously I don't want it to be all negative because that could be detrimental to them. But if I know I'm sending a goalkeeper to a club and they might get screamed at for letting one through their legs, but that's part of the process. That's part of the loan system that they have to operate at a performance level. And if a manager wants to shout and scream at them, even though it might not be my approach or the approach of the club where they're currently at, 
it's going to do them good in their career because at some point they're going to be faced with that. And it's almost a, how do you respond? Like when you're being questioned, do you with, wilt or do you sort of stand up and be counted? And I think that's why I don't want to control the environment where they go too much. Mm. You want to give them a variety of experiences, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Definitely agree. That's a definitely a good outlook on, on, on those sort of loans. Uh, makes them more, more adaptable. Um, obviously, we spoke a lot about goalkeepers there. Uh, and for any sort of young goalkeeper listening, that must be invaluable to listen to. But I think let's have a little segment of, for the coaches out there that might be listening. Yeah. Um, you've obviously, I, I spoke about it a lot in the intro and obviously you shed light on it as well. You've worked your way up the coaching ladder um, from humble beginnings to sort of the top of the game now. Um, so that's really good to see. What have been some of the main learning curves along the way if you were to sort of give advice um to any young coaches listening i think the first one really is that i I, I didn't realize this at the time but any coaching is coaching so actually i think obviously i must be i don't i'm not i don't like blowing my own trumpet i obviously must be all right at what i do to be where i am yeah i actually think the, the biggest skills I've gained as a coach were from my days at Derby Community Trust, working with three, four, five-year-olds, teaching them how to play football, tennis, dodgeball, even random sports like chook ball and things I've never heard of before in my life. But those experiences actually make you a really like the best coach, in my opinion, because like imagine, so teaching Kasper Schmeichel how to save a ball isn't difficult. You can do that. Teaching a three-year-old how to play tennis is near on impossible. So (laughs) you have to learn the art of like breaking every skill down to the nth degree. So working like Derby County Community Trust back in the day and delivering tennis to a group of five-year-olds, you can't just say pick up the racket and hit it because they can't even do that. They can't even pick up the racket properly. They don't know. So it's a steep learning curve in the essence of, oh my God, they don't even know how to hold the racket properly or they've never seen a tennis racket before in their life. And you have to break that down so much. So then going into Leicester, for example, and I've got a a 15 year old and I'm looking and he's not able to explode and push off the big saves. I can look at the video and break down every micro step and every little intricate detail and figure out exactly why that's not happening. But I've only been able to do that because of my experiences back in the community trust when I was 17, 18. Yeah. And that, like I said, I didn't realize it at the time, but any coaching is coaching. So even though at times I would think, why am I doing this? What am I here for? Actually, part of the reason I am where I am now is because of those experiences and having to work with those kids. And it's just doing that all the way through the, the pathway. So teaching a three-year-old how to play tennis is one thing, but then looking at, like I remember the uh, there was an interim period when I had to cover the 21s at Leicester. There were 23s at the time um, during COVID times. So obviously very different times for everyone, but it was a great opportunity for me to to cover them for three, four months, whatever it was. But you're looking at like one goalkeeper in particular, like six foot four, athletic, aggressive, unbelievable array of shot stopping techniques. And I'm looking at this kid and thinking, wow, this kid's special. And then he'd let a goal and you don't expect. And you're thinking oh, hang on. And it's hard to break down the skill because he's operating at such a high level. Yeah. It's an even smaller detail while he's not been able to do it. And it's just that 
hunger to just keep learning and keep taking on information has sort of helped me and helped gain and improve my understanding over the over the positions and over the years I've been in coaching. That's probably one of the most difficult parts of working at the, the real top of the game is obviously when you're working in the foundation levels, yeah, obviously, you know, it's a real high level of coaching in terms of teaching them that skill, but you've got so much to teach them. Um, the sessions are endless, you know, but when you're at that elite level, you're working with such a small amount, you're working with the, the finest margins of teaching them certain things that that's maybe one of the most difficult things of being an elite coach. Um, so yeah, yeah, that's an interesting perspective. I guess that's that maintenance as well, like maintaining the skills that they have already. I think yeah. probably, I guess, is, is a huge part of, of the coaching role as well. Yeah, I think something I've learned a lot from, so the makeup of our first team goalkeepers here, we have two goalkeepers who are in their 30s and one who's 19. So it's a massive spectrum in terms of age. And something I learned a lot from I mean I did this a fair amount in academy football but you have to be comfortable to ask them what they think and how they feel and I think some coaches can go a bit autocratic where it's like you will do this and you will do that and to a certain that is needed like it's that's not a skill that isn't needed because it massively is if they're doing something which is not going to work and you know for a fact it won't work you have to tell them to change it but I think like one of the things like being at Leicester and being able to observe and work with the first team keepers was so eye-opening for me it was because I'd very much grown up working in England with English goalkeepers being educated by the English FA and it's all very England 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 yeah and I remember seeing Casper catch that ball for the first time where oh, wow. he yeah he took it he took the ball to the chest and sort of with his hands facing towards the sky with his arms at like a right angle he caught it and I'll and my brain just went into meltdown. I was like, what have I just, what have I witnessed there? Like, how does that work? But obviously, if that works for him, it works. Now, if I can't find a reason, so just say, for example, it's not Kasper Schmeichel, it's a younger goalkeeper. So just say it's a 14-year-old. If I see them do something and go, well, that doesn't look right, I have to really challenge myself on, is that going to work in the future? So if the answer's yeah, well, I don't need to change it. I need to maximise that skill for them. But sometimes the answer is no. So things like diving mechanics, like I know because they're not putting that foot in the right place, they're never going to be able to generate power to make the save. So I have to fix that because that skill isn't going to help them. So it's a and it's it's really important here with more experienced first team senior goalkeepers is that how much do you change and how much do you maintain? Because I don't care what age you are, you can always improve. Like one of our goalkeepers here is like in her mid thirties, but she can always like she's improved this season with her with her distribution and with her playing out. You can always get better, but it's just how you approach that. And I think working with them and not not necessarily against them, but in working with them instead of telling them you will do this helps a lot. But like if they're going to buy into it, obviously it's going to help, isn't it? Mm. But yeah, I think giving them sort of that autonomy and ownership to be able to do that. In, in, in psychology, there's a theory called the SDT theory, self-determination theory, and one of the components is autonomy. So if you give someone autonomy, they're more likely to feel motivated, and especially in your session. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting that you sort of brought that out. The other two are competence and relatedness. Um, so it may be quite difficult for that 19-year-old to feel 
motivated um obviously being with two 30 year olds but she may have factors of the autonomy and competence because she is competent enough to be hanging with those those 30 year olds and have the autonomy from your sessions so yeah that's uh that's sort of really good what have been the main challenges for you um as a coach uh along the journey i think I would genuinely say one challenge for me has been my lack of understanding on certain areas. Now, I think that because I'm so passionate about goalkeeping specifically, my ability to pick up information in terms of goalkeeping, like the real detail of like foot position, hand position, dive mechanics, and all that kind of stuff, I've picked that up, not easily, but I've, I've taken to it well because I'm so passionate about it going more into senior football and obviously as I've gone up in the age groups at Leicester working with the 18s and the 21s and obviously now the first team here, the things like set plays and playing out from the back and looking at the opposition shape and all that, because I've not necessarily had like a, a real football upbringing, as in like I've not played hundreds of games when I was a child, one of my areas I've struggled with is my lack of understanding and that's something I've always had to work on. It's at a level now where I'm I'm obviously always trying to get better, but I feel more comfortable. But that was definitely a, a big challenge. Was but I think it was important. I had the self awareness to to realise it was a it was an issue because, uh, like I said, one of the coach educators at, at Notts County, McCausel, I think he's at West Brom now. He um he was like, well, we have all these individual learning plans for the players. Why don't the staff have them? And everyone was like, well, yeah, it's a great point. Like I should know what I'm good at, and I should know what my blind spots are. So I can either improve or if I'm dealing with an issue and it's one of my blind spots, get another member of staff to come and help me. And I think it's important that staff as well as players have those learning plans and know what they're about and where their pitfalls are. Mm, no, I definitely agree with that. We uh, went to visit Wolves and they had a, a similar setup. You know, all the coaches there had the like development plans and uh, and yeah, I remember like the the head, I forgot his name now, um, but the head of the coaches was just taking us through like you know examples of, of, of previous plans and so nice to see like you know like you said this is a key part of the development as a coach so yeah, yeah. Well, one of my, my boss when i was at reading um a guy called rob shea he's like people in the goalkeeping world know who he is but like in terms of football people he's quite an unknown people don't really know who he is but he is and he he likes that that's the way he wants it but he's unbelievable and he always said to me his his dream, he's been at Reading as a player from the age of eight and he's in his thirties now and he's still there as head of goalkeeping. Like he's been there for so long. And he said his vision was to have loads of goalkeepers playing professional football who've come through the Reading system, but staff as well. He wanted the top level to have loads of goalkeeper coaches who had come from Reading. So there's a guy called Mikey who's does the, he did, he does a very similar role to what I did at Leicester. I think he does like, 16s and 18s at Aston Villa. He came through Reading. I came through Reading as, and that's part of his thing. He wants to be a, a coach educator as well as a, a player educator, yeah. which obviously I'm, I'm very lucky I was able to work with him on that side. Yeah, no, for sure. Whilst we're talking about those dreams and ambitions, um, obviously coming towards the end of the podcast now, um, what are your future ambitions and, and dreams in your coaching career? I think... I've never had like a, when I was younger, when I was first starting out at like Notts County or even before I got into coaching, goalkeeping specifically, I always had like career-driven ambitions. Like I want to work 
at a club that is in European football or I want to work international or whatever that may be. I think now I've been in the game for longer. It's changed. It's I want people who are either in life or in goalkeeping. It's not even obviously in goalkeeping in football would be nice because that's the industry I'm in. But I just want there to be people out there who know they can count on me for stuff and they know that whatever it is, I will literally give them whatever I've got. And I think specifically talking in a football sense, if you do that through people's pathways, that is going to help them be professional footballers if that's what they want to be. Or if they are already a professional, that'll help them to achieve their goals of competing for league titles or being capped to their country or whatever that may be. But So I think, like I still speak to goalkeepers now, on a daily basis who I was coaching in like 2016, 2017. Um, And it's not even football related. Like sometimes it is, sometimes it's just chatting about, I don't know, one lad in particular, like we used to joke, he was like an old man because he loved darts and snooker as a 16 year old. And, but, but we talk about that sometimes and it's just, I think it's important. Like I over, actually, I think it might've been a coach who you've had on here before, who I used to work with Stephen Kirby, who's, I saw him the other night. He works at Leicester Women now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but he said, like, if someone thinks he's a bad coach and they don't agree with his tactics or or that, he can deal with that. If someone believed that he that he wasn't giving them his everything, he'd be mortified. And I can really relate to that because I think all the success stories I've had with players where they've gone from not necessarily underperforming, but maybe looking off track for scholarships or whatever that looks like. When they've gone from that to high performance at their age, it's mainly been down to me just showing them that I care about them as a as a person. And I think sometimes football can be a bit uncomfortable with that because I remember once saying to one of the lads in a in a like a review meeting with his parents and with the other staff, I told him that I had his back. I said, Don't worry, like I've got your back. And the club were uncomfortable because whether they thought that meant it had connotations of like I was going to give him a scholarship or whatever. It wasn't that. I was just saying, as a as a person, as a goalkeeper, I will give you whatever you need and I will have your back and support you. And actually, like I, I've realised that like after speaking to his dad for a while and as he's got older and able to sort of articulate his feelings better, that that's like a massive weight off his shoulders because he knows that someone's fighting for him and if he keeps doing the right thing, that people will be have his best interest at heart if that makes sense and I think that's an element of sport which is massive like the psychological personality personable side like Leicester winning the Premier League I know it's a real cliche example and I know they had like Kante and Mares and all these worldy players but where's Morgan where's Morgan and Robert Huth being two Premier League winning centre-backs like they've owned, they've had that ability in themselves unlocked because they had the belief they could do it. And I think that's a, a massive element of football and sport in general. If you let someone know that you believe in them and you highlight their positive attributes, they're surely only going to do better, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, I, I have a sort of similar way of working, uh, but it's difficult for me as a sports psychologist because one of my values is is self-sufficiency. But I like for them to know that they can reach out to me about anything, whether it's, you know, what we're talking about in those sessions or, you know, completely unrelated. Um, But the problem is when they ring me in that chaos moment 
where it's happening. I really want them to think about the sessions that we've had and can they, because I'm trying to build tools within them to be able to cope with those moments. So the fact that they ring me for the constant support shows that I might not be doing my job. So it's real, it's a real fine line being a sports psychologist, but um, yeah, I definitely share similar values. And I also mm -hmm. liked how you sort of touched on in the wider perspective, not just in goalkeeping. I feel like that's huge. Um, seeing yourself as a person and not just your identity is not just your career. I think that's really I, important. I think, uh, to be fair, there's two things what you just said there. The first bit was about the, you know, about the, the crisis mode with players. Yeah. We had a, a really good discussion when I was working at Leicester with the 18 sports psychologist, a lad called Ben. And um, he, he, he made me laugh because he said that a lot of people view psychology, especially in sport, as like a, someone's had a bad game they've thrown one in, put them on a chaise lounge and talked to them about their feelings. And like, that's the archaic view of what psychology looks like. Yeah. So what I worked with him on with was like a, so like you have a tech, you have a technical syllabus, you have a tactical syllabus. Well, psychology is such a massive factor for performance. Why isn't there a psychological syllabus? So we never got far enough to nailing down an actual syllabus, but on the bottom of my session plans, and I still have it with me um, to this day, um, is like a psychological focus for the session. So especially working in development football, like I might be doing a distribution session, the psych focus is freedom. So there's no goal behind them. There's no consequence. It's just go and experiment, go and have a go. If you want to try a, a weak foot, half volley, sidewinder, just, just try it. Like there's no consequences, nothing can go wrong. And on the flip side of that, I had sessions where I'd put a player right in their face and I'd hit like a dipping volley at them. And I would, I told the player in front of them, if you don't catch this ball clean, this guy's going to like smash it past you into the back of the net. So the pressure of dealing with that, but I think like you say, what I don't want to happen is my, the goalkeepers I've worked with in the past get to a point where they do something wrong and they have a crisis moment and they bring a sports psychologist and have a meltdown. You want them to have the tools in the bank to, to recall on them whenever they want. And they might need additional support from a psychologist. That's fine. That's I'm not saying that's not okay, but you want to build up like a robust individual who can deal with setbacks and and not just negative, but they can deal with positives as well. Like if they make a worldy save, they're not then living on cloud nine so much so when an easy trickly ball comes in, they let it through their legs because they've lost their focus. They've had an array of experiences, but I think you can't just replicate that on game day because game day is like the the fight or flight moment you need to, to hard work on the training pitch the same way you do it te technically and tactically you can do it psychologically as well yeah. and the big part of that self-sufficiency is also like oliver said it's for life outside of you know sport football it's it's when problems you know arise in our daily lives how could because you can use the skills that you've developed whilst working with the sports psychologist and adapt it to, to those life specific issues so it's not only about football related but it's about life related aspects as well so yeah yeah 100%. i love that psychology syllabus uh, i'd love to actually see like uh what that actually looked like um combined like how you combine it with the technical and tactical as well the reason um, it was so hard to pin down was just because of that because yeah, how it intertwines yeah exactly so i used to do it a lot on the system of just what the individual needs so and the folks in the session, like if I'm doing a, if I'm doing a one v one defending the goal, real tight area type session, I want there to be a lot of pressure because that is the case in the game. 
Whereas if I'm practicing the technique, one thing we spoke a lot about specifically to goalkeeping was doing it outside of the goal because to them, the goal is the end result. So if I'm practicing 1v1 techniques, just do it on a bit of random grass with no goal behind them. So you're telling them the only objective is to touch the ball because you can sometimes have someone who will do the perfect technique, perfect execution, but just because football is the way it is, it will hit their forearm, bounce onto the ground, hit the bar and go in. They're now directly associating that technique with a negative, whereas actually the technique itself was good. It's just a negative outcome. And I think the older and more experienced goalkeepers get, they can see that, but the younger ones can't. So sometimes doing stuff away from the goal helps them have that, that experimental type approach to training, if that makes sense. Mm. Yeah, no, I like that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, we could talk constraints <laughs> and all of this all day long, but I know you're a busy man. It's a, it's a Friday afternoon. Uh, maybe there's a room for a part two because in terms of this podcast, so much value has come of it and uh, I've learned so much in terms of those constraints that you do uh, and the tenants you take from different sports as well. I think it's been really interesting. Uh, in terms of like, Normally we have like a list of topics that we go down. This was very much just like off the cuff and just bouncing off each other. So I've really, uh, I've really enjoyed it. It's been fun to yeah. sort of switch it up. No, I have a, I have, a, I have a lot. To, anyone who knows me will find it funny because they know I have a lot to say. I, I never stop talking. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think like psychology in sports is so big. I could literally talk all day about it because I think it's like a massively underutilized area. But yeah. Yeah, if you ever want to do a part two, let me know. I'm always up for it. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, for sure. No, I appreciate it. I'm Sean Dyche anyway, because apparently I sound like him. I don't hear it myself. But... <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's true, actually. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, yeah, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate no, no, it. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share it with your friends or someone you feel will benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, and comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get on in the future. Also, go follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video or find us at Master in the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one.